Well, good morning. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, there's lots of things about you and who you are that we don't understand, Father. You have so much power, Lord. It's unfathomable to think about the way that you made the world, the way that you made us, the way that you do things, Father. There's so many mysteries that we look at that I know I'm just baffled by. And I know that one day when we meet you, we'll be able to ask you why, and you'll explain, and you'll help us to see and to grasp, Father, but one thing I don't know if you'll ever be able to explain is why you love people like us, Father. The most unexplainable thing about your nature is your great love for people like us with such weak faith, Father. Oh, and Lord, we're grateful for it. That's the thing that leads us to worship you. I pray that, Father, that we wouldn't see our weakness as an obstacle to get to know you, but we would see it as an opportunity that reminds us that in our hands we have nothing to offer that's of any worth to you, Father. I pray that you would use our weakness, especially as we read it here in the text, to introduce us to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What was the very first thing that you can recall that you wanted to be great at? Right? All of us have this passion for greatness. All of us have this desire to see the weaknesses that we have overcome so that we can be great. For me, it was basketball. Um, I was born with a birth defect called Herb's palsy that messed with my right arm. So to this day, I can't straighten my right arm out all the way, and I have uh, shoulder and elbow problems as a result of it. So for me, that was, there was a clear weakness in my game, and um, my brother Sam, one thing that he did, or he spent all of his time on, is he constantly tried to show me that greatness in basketball had to do with overcoming weaknesses and proving that you were strong. So his aim was find what you're weak at and work and work and work and work and work until you're strong. And if you do that, you'll be great. And it was true to an extent. Maybe it wasn't basketball for you, but all of us have this same inward drive for greatness. Right? Nobody wakes up or grows up in school and raises their hand and say, my dream is to be a mediocre dot, dot, dot. Everybody wants to be great. Greatness in our world is defined by strength. Greatness starts with an awareness of weakness. But in our pursuit, one thing that we find very, very quickly is there's tons of pitfalls that come with the pursuit of greatness, and I'm just going to name a few here. One is this. Pursuing greatness in this world is a never-ending journey. There's always something else to get. It's like setting out for a race, starting to run, and asking a referee, where's the finish line? And he says, there is none. And you run and run and you run and you try to do as hard as you can. And what you find out is there's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be something else to gain. Some other approval. Some other form of acceptance. Some other award. So pursuing greatness in this life is a never-ending journey. It's exhausting. It's a race with no finish line. The point of every race is rest. I run so that at the end of the day, I can rest. Pursuing greatness in this life, one thing that you find out is there's never rest. So it makes it the worst race in the world. Not just that, but the pursuit of greatness, even in the best of us, can foster jealousy and envy, 
which at the end of the day is going to ruin any and every relationship that you have. Anything that you work for in this life that can be earned can be outdone. And it will be outdone. So even if you're presently successful, if your hope is in the thing that you worked for, you're eventually going to be empty because it can be outdone. And it will be outdone. And here's why I say it ruins relationships. Because it's going to be outdone by somebody else. And now what you'll find out is that you'll find yourself in relationships with people that have the very thing that you want so hard to get but you can't get. A pursuit of greatness never lets you celebrate and rejoice in what somebody else does. It never lets you be okay with just being good. You always have to be better. And when you have to be better than somebody else, when your worth is wrapped up in being better, what takes place is this. You don't just try your best to ascend and to get to the top because you know that if you get to, to the top, somebody else has to drop down. Right? So I'm a big fan of Baylor sports in this past weekend. What took place was this. Yeah, Sikkim Bears, we got one out there. Uh, what took place was this. Baylor had to win their last game, and OU had to lose their last game. So instead of just being able to sit and to enjoy the game of football, I find myself cheering for my team and rooting for the downfall of somebody that has what I want. And envy robs us of the joy of being able to rest because we look at people that we have what we want and we can't even rejoice in what God does through them, but we cheer and we long for them to fail. And what we have is this, the pursuit of greatness that is innate inside of us sabotages relationships, the very thing that we need to thrive. We're complex people in ourselves. We know that we need relationships, but the pursuit of greatness that we have on the inside destroys the ability for you and I to find ourselves in meaningful relationships where we rejoice in the great things that God does in and through somebody else. This pursuit of greatness, it's not wrong, it's human, but it leads us down these wrong paths. Historically, Christians have felt like, well, if that's the case, then in order to be Christian, what that means is that we just have to get rid of trying to be great and we just have to be okay with being okay. But is that what God wants? Does God want people that are mediocre in all spheres of life? No way. That doesn't reflect a good and a great God. What does God want? What we're going to see here in our text is this. Jesus doesn't rebuke our quest for greatness. Jesus redefines and redirects how it is that we go about and get this greatness. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14, and we're, we're going to look at what it is that Jesus is looking for. Jesus spends his time and he's with these 12 guys. These guys are disciples or apprentices. And one thing that you find out is that what every good teacher does is he looks for something in students. There has to be some promise, something that he sees, something that draws him to them and draws them to him. So Jesus, here where we find ourselves in Mark, he's on his way to the cross. And as he's on his way, he's constantly going to reveal who he is to smoke out what's wrong in the way the disciples view him. What things war with trying to follow Jesus. And he's going to show us what it is that he really looks for. Mark chapter 9 verse 14 starts off and says this. 
And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Shane, can you turn me down in the back? It feels a little loud. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So here's what takes place. Jesus comes down from the mountain with, the, with Peter, James, and John. And when he comes down, he comes down to the disciples arguing with a crowd. And they're fighting over something. And all of a sudden, this man comes up and says, Jesus, I brought my son to you and they couldn't heal him. Imagine that. Somebody that has a very, very real need, and the only thing that he has is a bunch of religious people fighting about something, ignoring his need. He comes to him and asks Christ to heal him, and look, look, look at what takes place. He says he was with the disciples, and he brought them to heal him, and they couldn't. So you have a group of folks that are brought face to face with an awareness of their weakness. And Jesus comes through and he rebukes them for their lack of, of faith. Right? It's easy for us to read this and to look at this man and to say, why didn't he just have faith? Didn't he know that this was Jesus who healed folks that were dead? He caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. But if we take a step back, what you and I will find out is that we're more like this man than we would think. This is a man that had a very, very real problem. There were people who had healed a problem like his before. There were people that claimed to have the power to solve what was wrong with him. He went to these people and he found no help. That's likely to diminish the faith of anybody. Think of you here. Have you ever been at a place where you found yourself physically sick, emotionally depressed, weak, and you pray and you pray and you pray for God to heal you and he doesn't? And you take your problems to the church or people that claim to have the answers and you find no help. Have you ever been at that place? Are you in that place right now maybe? Where regardless of how much you've tried, how much you've pleaded for help, you just find yourself in this place where it's helpless. It leads you to feel even though Jesus has solved problems like this before, maybe there's something about me right now that's unique. Maybe he can't do anything about what I'm facing right now. If you've been there, this is where that man is. And Jesus comes and look what he does. He rebukes him for his lack of faith. Verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening? To him. Stop right there. Jesus has cast demons out of countless folks in this book. He never asks anyone the history of it. He just goes and he does it. What's he doing here? Is he trying to get a diagnosis? 
Is he trying to find out what kind it is? Because if he knows what kind it is or how long that this is going on, then that's going to help him heal. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's asking this question to surface what's in this man's heart. And look at what goes on here. Verse 22. Uh, it says this, and he said from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But, listen, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. What's brought out here is that the problem in this story is not with Jesus' ability. You and I feel that that's the case. You and I tend to confuse Jesus' inactivity with inability. We think that just because he hasn't, that he can't. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the case. If I can, that's an insult. Talking about possibilities with a God that does the impossible is always an insult to this great God. It's like asking somebody that's a power lifter to help you move and say, hey, if you can, lift this table. Of course I can. That's what I do. I lift things. Jesus is insulted by this. If you can. And then what he does is he turns the table. And what he says is this. All things are possible for one who believes. This is not about possibilities for God. This is about the faith that exists in this man. Jesus hinges the healing of this man's son on his faith. And look at the response that, that this man said. Verse 24 says this, Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said this, I believe, help my unbelief. What he says is, if all of this is going to be based on my faith, then this is easy. I don't have any. I want to believe in you, but I need you to give me that what I don't have. Help my unbelief. And what we find is this is what Jesus is looking for in people that follow him. And I want you to grasp this. Jesus is not looking for an argument of how worthy you are. Jesus is looking for an admission of weakness. He's not looking for people to prove themselves or to say, you should help me because of dot, dot, dot. He's looking for people that will sit back and say, I'm weak, I can't do it, I need you to help me. And look at how the rest of this plays out. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, and this is one thing that he doesn't do when he heals anyone else. He says this, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him right now and never come into him again. Jesus heals tons of people, but he doesn't do this, make this future promise of protection against this. And what we see is this. Jesus is attracted and loves people that admit that they're weak. Jesus is drawn to the weak. There is complete and total healing for a man that has very, 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 very weak faith. And that should be an encouragement to all of us in here. Because what we find, or what you will find out at some point, is that regardless of how hard, how strong you think your faith is, it takes one tragedy, like C.S. Lewis says, to show that the tower of your faith is nothing more than a house of cards. Tragedy crumbles our faith. It shows us that we aren't as strong as we think that we are. 
it shows us that we have very, very weak faith. And everywhere else in the world, weakness robs you of experiencing greatness. But here, from the outset, what we see is this man experiences Jesus' great power, even though he's very, very weak. And this should be an encouragement to all of us that are tired and are exhausted and feel bogged down because in light of all the good things that God has done in the past, we still don't feel like he can do it for us. Complete and total healing for people that have very, very weak faith. 28, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, he's dead. Isn't it funny how when Christ comes on the scene to heal, sometimes things get worse before they get better. And, and that shouldn't drive us from faith. It should make us lean more into God's word. He said that he's going to heal even if things get worse before they get better. God's going to be faithful to complete his word. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and he had went with them privately into his house, and his disciples asked him, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You look at this story, and one thing that you see that's very, very clear here is in this story, it seems like no one prays. How can Christ say this can only come out by prayer? It's clear in the Bible where Jesus prays. When he feeds the 5,000, he prays. When he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, he prays. The Lord's prayer, he, he prays. He doesn't pray here. It's not about Jesus praying. What we find here is that this man that asked Jesus, to give him faith, made a request of God himself. And if making a request of God is not prayer, then I don't know what is. And so we see in this small thing, Jesus affirming the fact that he is in fact God. So what goes on is this backdrop is painted of the greatness of God being shown for people that are very, very weak. And now... Jesus is getting ready to reveal himself. He's getting ready to go into depth once again and to share why it is that he came to the world. And he says this in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Plain as day. It's plain. Jesus is speaking very, very clearly. I'm getting ready to go and give myself up and die, and I will raise from the dead. And it says, but they did not un un understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Why didn't they get it? Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, listen, what were you discussing on the way? So in this part of Mark, from Mark 8 to 10, this word on the way is used six times. And every time on the way is used, it's used to talk about Jesus changing what he did. Mark 1 through 8, Jesus went on a tour round and round and round. But then in Mark 8, it says, and Jesus went on the way to Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because last time he was in Jerusalem, people tried to kill him. And so we see Jesus not running, trying to preserve his life like we talked through last week, but headed towards his death on the way to the Son of God, to the great and powerful God, getting ready to kill himself for people that don't deserve it. The twelve are talking. And Jesus asked them, what are y'all fighting about? And, and look here. 
verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he says this, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him into the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. One of the things that I love about Jesus is this. The silent treatment doesn't work on him. The silent treatment only works if somebody can't read your mind. Jesus asked them why they're fighting. And because of this guilt and shame, they don't say it. But that doesn't prohibit Jesus from having a conversation with us. And that's the beauty of it. Right? Even if we don't talk back, even if we try to hide what's wrong with us, Jesus is constantly going to find ways to talk to us, to communicate to us, to let us know that he cares and he's concerned and he wants to redirect what's wrong with us. Jesus reveals that his goal is to die. But what you have is a group of people that misinterpret it because their concern is earthly greatness. They want to be prosperous. They want to be seen as something. They want the approval of men, and so they'll fight for it. And Jesus' point in all of this, and I want you to get this, is this, that a quest towards earthly greatness as an end in itself is a quest away from Jesus. A quest towards earthly greatness as an end in itself, as the goal, as the reason why I live, is a journey that leads you far from Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't meet anybody in their strength. He meets everybody in their weakness. Everybody in their desperation. We view weakness as an obstacle. Jesus views it as an opportunity to show us that we really don't have anything to offer. So he goes on and as Jesus reveals who he is, he does so in order to smoke out what's wrong with us so that as it comes to the forefront, he can deal with those things that are wrong. As Jesus tells them, that the greatest man to live on the face of the earth is going to die for sin. The disciples don't get it because it's unfathomable to them that somebody would use their greatness for anything else than being served. So what Jesus is trying to do is trying to break them of their self-sufficiency. And for the sake of time, we can't go through the rest, but he does it in three ways. I'm going to talk about the first two. Uh, we've talked about the, the third one in, in the past few weeks here. Verse 38 to 41, John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Look here, the very thing that they could not do. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's one of the ways that the quest for earthly greatness leads us away from Jesus. It puts us in this place where we pursue prominence, where we pursue this elitism, where inside one thing that takes place in us that we saw in them is the disciples, if they had to choose in between somebody being tortured by a demon or them being healed but not by them, they would choose the former. 
Their concern is not people being healed. Their concern is their role in somebody else being healed. Right? And this, this takes place in all of us, especially if you're married. Right? Where you tell your wife or your spouse something and they don't hear you out and they fight with, with, uh, with you. And then three days later, they go to lunch with, with their friend and they come back and say, hey, my friend said dot, dot, dot. And you say, that's the same thing that I was trying to tell you. And we're frustrated. We're not content with people being made well. But a quest for earthly greatness is only content if people are made well so long as I find myself somewhere in the story. And that quest for greatness leads people far from Jesus, and Jesus rebukes it. The next thing that he talks through is this, this quest for strength, uh, overconfidence in your ability to withstand temptation. So he's going to go on and say this. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. And three times he's going to use the word hell. Hell. It's better to have one eye in, uh, 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 and to find your way into God's kingdom than, than to have both eyes and be in hell. It's better to have one hand and find yourself with God than to have two hands and to be in hell. The disciples are talking about how it is that we advance in God's kingdom. Jesus spends all his time saying, don't put the cart before the horse. I want to tell you how you get admitted into God's kingdom. It's no use trying to talk about if somebody belongs in the hall of fame if they've never even made it to the NBA yet. It's foolish. So Jesus, as they talk about greatness, he's saying, wait, wait, wait. I want to make sure that y'all know what the price of admission is. So what he does is he says, there are people that are overconfident in their ability to withstand temptation. There are people that think they have enough strength to endure the conveniences of life. And Jesus is saying, no present convenience is worth eternal destruction. So we look at these words and we say they're hyperbole. But one guy once said this, Jesus didn't, make, Jesus didn't mean for us to take these words literally, but they are literally true. It is really better to find yourself in heaven with one arm than to go to hell with both. What does that look like for us? We're not going to chop off our arms. But it's this, right? A very, very practical, down-to-earth way through the course of the years, I found this to be one of the truths that has beset so many young guys and old guys and young girls and old girls, and it's this. It's better to go to heaven not having had an iPhone than to have an iPhone in hell. I found so many people that justify the convenience that it brings. Well, I need it for work, and it helps me to be more productive, and it helps me to do all of this. Yet and still, they constantly talk through the problem and the struggle that they have with porn, with viewing people through a lens that appalls the God that created them as his sons and daughters. And they think they're strong enough to be able to enjoy the conveniences that they find here on earth, only to find that they're constantly beset by the same thing. And Jesus is saying here, the quest for earthly greatness always puts an overconfidence in strength. Temptation is not something to mess with. You may think that you have a strong resolve and a strong will, but one thing that we see from the Scriptures is that your resolve and your will is no match for the devil's. Present convenience isn't worth eternal disaster. 
earthly greatness pursues prominence. It pursues present convenience. And lastly, it looks to God's law and it pursues self-righteousness. Jesus then finds himself in a conversation, and we've talked about this before, about the Pharisees come to Jesus and what they say to him is they question him about the nature of divorce. And they say to him, what's the right process? That as these self-righteous people look to God's law, they look to it and they try to take God's standard and reduce it, drop the bar to a place where they can keep his word. And Jesus responds back to a group of folks that look at God's law and are concerned primarily with their process. The process of divorce, Jesus steps in and his primary concern is the preservation of marriage. People are trying to find a loophole, a way out, a way to clear their conscience without cleansing their heart. But Jesus looks and what he says was from the beginning, God never meant for a man and his wife to split up. Jesus is advocating that marriages find themselves, that folks that are married find themselves in a place where there's this commitment to stay together. And one thing that you find out is this. In marriage, you see just how hard it is to fulfill the command, love your neighbor as yourself. These Pharisees who would like to find a loophole to get out of it, so that they can constantly boast in their strength. Jesus is trying to bring us back to a place where we're admitting our weakness. And, and his point in all of this is this. Admission into God's kingdom is only for those that have made an admission of weakness. That's the way that you get in. And, and, and admission of weakness is the first step. And then at the end, um, as we come to a close before we talk about the application, Jesus gives us two stories to show why this is true. The very first one is this. Starting in 10, verse 13, it says this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not ent ent enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we see one group of folks that gets in, and then he goes on and says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And look here at these words very, very closely. And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Jesus is making an invitation. Don't miss that. It said he loved them. These words aren't to cause this man harm. It's to make an invitation Sell all that you have and come and be with me. And look at how this man responds. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Here's why weakness lies at the heart of what it means to be great in God's kingdom and how one finds themselves accepted in God's kingdom. It's this. Those that are weak come to God open-handed. 
because they know they have nothing to offer. And that's what a Savior wants. The beauty of it is this. There's a God here that's in need of nothing. So anything that you come and try to give him is an insult because he has it all. So you have the perfect odd couple, a God that's in need of nothing and people that can offer nothing. So that when this God comes and accepts these people, they're never confused into thinking God loves me because of what I did. But for them, it's always a mystery. I don't know why God would love somebody like me. I don't have anything to offer. And Christ says that's the only way that people get into the kingdom. And that's the good news of the gospel. That you and I, with nothing to offer but our sin and the things that we've done wrong, have not found condemnation, but we found the best comfort and peace because a God who needs nothing came and gave himself for all of those who could offer nothing. But here's what stands in the way. Regardless of that good news, we have an aversion to weakness. If the weak come to God because they have nothing to offer, the wealthy turn from God because they think they'll lose everything. That an invitation from Jesus for somebody that has it all, it costs you something. And it feels like we're presently getting the short end of the stick. This guy didn't come to Jesus and he ran from him because he saw coming to Jesus means the end of all that I've put my hope in. Coming to Jesus means that all the things that I thought would bring me security, all the approval, all the money, all the people, all the things that I thought would give me what I want, I have to give those up. And this is why it's hard and why Christ will go on and say for those that are wealthy and wise and have it all here in this world, this is why it's hard. Because the deceitfulness of riches and the present security that we get in the approval of people and being successful in our pursuit of greatness, the things that we hold on so tightly to, those are the very things that Jesus is trying to save us from. And so what we find here is that the wealthy, the wise, are those that are worthy. They think that they'll lose it all. And what they don't get what we don't get is that all the things that we have that we tend to look at as earthly blessings can really turn out just to be a huge disadvantage because they rob us of the gift of desperation. Uh, I have a good friend here in Atlanta named Charlie, and I met her when we went to, uh, 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 I, I found myself, uh, spending a bunch of time at the bakery next door to our, our church for four years while we were in the old fourth ward. And in the course of our time there, Charlie and I built a good friendship. And one thing that she constantly brought up was that she was a heroin addict. She was just gripped and consumed with drugs, and it wrecked and it ruined her life. And she said she constantly tried by her willpower to tell herself, I need to do better, I need to do right, it's going to cost me, my family's going to cost me, my loved ones, it, it's going to cost me, all of this. But she said, I never had the power to, to change. And then one day she went back and she said, but there was one day, one time, one choice where I lost it all. Everything that I had was gone from me. And she said, I look back at that time with fondness. That it's what she called and what they call in 12-step programs, the gift of desperation. It's not just that 
we're weak. We're all weak. But it's life bringing us to a place where you and I sit back and acknowledge the fact that we're weak and we don't try to pretend. And it's this gift of desperation that God provides to us. An awareness of our weakness, which is the first step into admission into God's kingdom. And what he tells us is that there are no losers. Everything that we give up for Christ is never a loss. Verse 27, or, uh, after, after Christ says that it's hard for a rich person to get into God's kingdom, it's hard for those that have it all in this life to be aware of the fact that they're weak, the disciples are baffled because they've been taught, if, if I'm good in this life, it's because of what God has provided for me. And Christ says this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said this, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, and look, see, we have left it all and followed you. This is him trying to prove his worth. We left it all. And Christ said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who were first will be last and the last will be first. Peter jumps up and says this, God, we left it all. We took the short end of the stick for you, trying to bolster this fact that he's worthy. And the funny thing about Peter is this, right now he is? But when Jesus actually goes to the cross, Peter's going to leave him. Peter's going to desert him. Regardless of how strong that you feel right now, there is a time and a circumstance that will come that will show you that you're weak. What then, Peter? What are you going to say then? You can't come back to the fact that you left all because you ran back to it as soon as times got hard. And this is the beauty of what Jesus does on the cross. The disciples are spending their lives pursuing prominence, wanting people to look up to them. Jesus spends his life running away from it. He leaves from his throne to come down and embrace weakness. The disciples, you and I spend our lives constantly going after conveniences that may in fact lead us to sin. Jesus, who never sinned, forsook conveniences here in this world. You and I, who when we look at God's law and look at the standard that he calls us to, what we find out is it exposes our flaws and our weaknesses. Jesus looked towards God's law and all that it did was highlight his beauties and perfections because he kept it all. And do you know what this great Jesus did with all of his greatness? He used it to serve you and I who were so weak. He died on a cross for our sins. So that when you and I find ourselves in a place where our present wealth and wisdom and resolve fail us, we have somebody that never did. We have hope in the midst of all of that. And Jesus makes this invitation for all of us. And the weak, those that have nothing to offer. It's good news if you find yourself in here today and you say, I'm weak, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. I've proved time and time again that I'm faithless and I don't do what God has called me to do. 
that hasn't disqualified you from God's grace. That's made you the prime candidate to receive if you would just admit your weakness to God and say, Lord, I need you to save me and change me. And then to the extent that God does change us and give us strength for the Christian, greatness in God's kingdom is not measured by strength. It's measured by service. It's measured by spending our lives for the benefit of others in every way that we can. And do you know what that does? It changes us. It turns hearts that would envy what somebody else has into hearts that are empathetic for people that don't have. It changes us from longing to be great to longing to serve those that are weak. And the best way that we can serve them is by telling them your weakness, like mine, like everybody else, doesn't prohibit us from receiving God's love and strength. It's actually the first step. And so my prayer is that we would be a people that not only acknowledge our weakness as a way to get in, but that we would live our whole lives as Christians, that those that are constantly aware of the fact that we're weak, so there is no judgment, there is no condemnation when weakness and failings and insecurities rear their head in the church, but there's only empathy and compassion and grace and service. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we sit back and uh, once again we confess and we know that we're weak, but you're strong and Father, that's the comfort that we rest in. The beauty of the gospel um, is not that our strength shines through, but yours does, even in our failings and our weaknesses. It presents the best backdrop for your glory. So we pray that you help us to be those that embrace the fact that we have nothing to offer and to be grateful that we are accepted by a God that needs nothing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.